This is The Structuring Podcast. Good day and welcome back. This is The Structuring Podcast. Terry War here. And this is part two of an interview I did with the Aussie Firebug, Matt, who had this on his um, Aussie Firebug podcast several months ago. And Matt has given me permission to post it on The Structuring Podcast. So this is part two. Part one was last week, so go back and listen to that first, and here's part two. Okay, now this next one isn't a case study. It's just a question, so hopefully um, it's easy to digest. Calvin writes in, hey, AFB, thanks for the recent pod with Terry on Trust. It was quite heavy, but very insightful. I've always found similar podcasts or articles to be too broad-brushed on a high level to be very actionable. I have a question regarding the actual distribution of income in discretionary trusts. Let's use yours for an example. You mentioned your retired parents are beneficiaries of your family trust. How then do you make sure that the $18,000 or whatever the tax-free threshold worth of income is can still be used by you when it is distributed to them? And he's saying, quotation, because Terry mentioned that the transaction doesn't necessarily have to be made. In other words, how does the trust distribute to the beneficiary on a tax level, but keep the money for myself to use and spend? Calvin. Well, Calvin basically can't. <laughs> if you distribute to someone, that means it's their money. So if the trust doesn't pay it, it's called an unpaid present entitlement, which is similar to a loan, but the, the money all, always belongs to the uh, recipient even though they haven't received it. And interestingly, um, probably a month ago or so, the ATO put out a taxpayer alert about this very topic. I seen that. I did see that, yes. So they're, they're going to crack down on it. And there's another section of the Tax Act, which is Section 100A, which is about reimbursement agreements. And that's about um, where person A is made presently entitled to the income but person B benefits from it. And where that happens, they can tax the trustee at the top tax rate, 45%. So it looks like they're going to um, crack down on this area. I mean, they, they say a lot of things though, Terry. Like, is, are they actually, <laughs> do, you, do, you, do you know what I mean? Like they, they every, every uh, most years, especially election years, they come out, they say they're going to do this, they say they're going to do that. And it's all well and good, but sometimes- that it's more of a um, deter deterrent than it is actually, you know, laws get passed and things change because most of the reading that I've done, a lot of wealthy, rich, powerful people use these methods. Uh, so I just, I find it hard to believe that it would actually go through, but maybe we'll see. Well, yeah, they, they are trying to scare people into not doing mm, it. I know, yeah. But to be on the safe side, it, it'd be good to actually give the money to your parents because it does belong to them and then- the, the parents may gift it back to you, although I think there was an example in the tax alert where constant gifting year after year is going to be deemed as a uh, potential reimbursement. Well, that, that was what I was going to bring up specifically to Calvin because he mentioned my situation, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on it as well. You've sort of already answered it there, but I guess in my situation, yes, my self-funded retiree parents do get distributions from the trust, and- we do pay that out to them. Like that is paid from the trust account. But then I guess an argument could be made once it's their money, you know, they, they love me. I'm, I'm their favorite son. If they want to give me money, what's like, why should the government penalize 
them for wanting to gift their son money. I know it is a tax minimization, you know, roundabout way you could argue that, which is to your point, Terry. But there's plenty of people that minimize their tax. There's plenty of strategies to minimize your tax. I just, it's a weird, I think it would be a, a weird ruling um, for them to go after unless like you don't want it to be abused. But that's essentially what we do in our situation. So at the moment, as is the current law of the land, if I if the money does go from the trust to my parents and then they gift it back to me as of right now, that's perfectly legal, isn't it, Terry? Well, it's legal and um, Section 100A does have a uh, exception for ordinary family dealings as well. But uh, there's also other sections such as um, this Part 4A, the anti-avoidance provisions where they can cancel out a tax benefit. So although it's legal to do, they could potentially cancel out any any tax benefit. So they they wanted to, they could just take it away. At like any any point, if they wanted to really go after you enough, they could pull this provision out and just say, nah, you're avoiding tax. You got to pay it. Potentially, yeah. Potentially, doesn't okay. mean they would, but they potentially could. Right, and I guess that comes back to how much money and how good you are, your team of lawyers, right? Mm, yeah, yeah, and also for them to uh, to do that, they've got to find it in the first place. So you've got to be audited. Mm, yeah, yeah, exactly. It's a slim chance of being audited. Yep. Perhaps another way might be not to take the money back, but to um, your your parents could own a car and let you drive it. That was that, I was actually thinking that, like, just as we're speaking. Like what happens if they wanted to buy me a new car or, you know, pay down my house loan? There's a hundred different examples and scenarios where even if you don't get the money, you could still get the value from that from your parents. And I just think it would be so hard for them to say like the trust is distributing to you guys and then you own that money. Now, what I do with my own money, that's up to us, whether or not we enrich the lives of our son, our daughter, the cousin, whatever. Like I just feel like it would be really murky waters and hard and the lines would be really blurred if it wasn't a cash payment, if it was some other uh, benefit that you got. Well, to be safer, it might be uh, a good idea to get something different done every year. <laughs> a car a gift one to year. You, a gift to your spouse, a car. Yeah, 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 right. They might buy your groceries. Yeah. Get a credit <laughs> card. $18,000 <laughs> worth of uh, Woolworths vouchers. Okay. All right. I think we've answered that one pretty well there. So we will move on to the next one. And this comes in from Muhammad. Can you ask Terry about the consequences of buying an LIC in an individual name versus a trust and then distributing income via the trust? I.e., can we give each kid $416 but no attached franking and instead give the franking credits to the higher income earner? If the portfolio generates three and a half grand worth of fully franked income with franking credits, can we gift or can we give 416 to two children and another 416 to the spouse and get give the remaining 2668 plus the franking credits to the higher income earner Muhammad well Muhammad the the franking credits attach to the dividends so they they go with the dividends they can't go elsewhere so this is an easy no answer yeah okay yeah and in in theory each child can earn up to 416 per year and not pay any tax so if you've got enough children you could potentially distribute to them but um, I think accountants generally don't like that because it's a bit complicated and it, it could complicate the tax returns you had a feeling that you were going to say that Terry but I thought I'd include it in this um, th- these questions because it was just interesting I was like wow I, I've never even thought about that can you can you distribute 
the money and then the franking credits elsewhere. But I thought the same thing. It has to be attached to the actual dividend that you're receiving. So there you go. All right, let's move on to the next question from Mike. I'm currently in the highest marginal tax bracket at 47% and working as a sole trader slash contractor. My wife works part-time as she has to take care of our child. I understand as a sole trader slash contractor, I am under PSI rules for tax purposes and I cannot contribute my income to my wife and child via family trust because of PSI rule. I was wondering with my current situation, are there any rules that can be bent to be under PSB so that I can operate a discretionary family trust and distribute my income to my wife? Many thanks, Mike. Well, I, I don't know much about the PSI rules, but basically they're designed to try and prevent income splitting with spouses and companies, etc. Yeah, and the, the, the PSI is- um, Personal services income, yep. Right. So basically you, you can't split your income. If you were conducting a, a genuine business, you, you potentially could- but um, not if you're like an employee type contractor. Yeah, this was. There's a similar rule in the UK for this one, and similar to what I spoke about earlier in the podcast. It was Division, I think, 35 in the UK was a specific ruling, and all the contractors used to try to go outside of Div 35 because it meant basically that you could receive an income as a dividend and get those massive tax benefits. And basically, what Div 35, I'm pretty sure it was Div 35. It was, are you a hidden employee? Like, are you a contractor getting the higher contracting rates and all the benefits that you get being a contractor? But if you're contracting to the same company, then you you don't get the added benefit of the like tax minimization from the dividend payments. So it was an interesting, uh, when I read this question, it sounds like there's something very similar in Australia with the PSI rule and whether or not you actually fall under that and everything like that. So that's interesting. All right. Let's move on to the last question we've got today. And the question comes in from Amit, and I hope I'm pronouncing that right. I would love to hear about estate planning slash will process for families with international assets to ensure that global assets pass on to their kids. Also, what's the best way to nominate an international guardian for minors to cater for the unfortunate scenario of both parents passing away? Well, um, you you can make a will in Australia and that will can cover international assets, but you've got to get legal advice in the the location of those assets because the Australian will may not be valid in in that jurisdiction. Um, so it may not it may not work. The other alternative is to do two wills. So you could do one will just for your Australian assets and a second will overseas just for your assets in that country. You just got to make sure that one will doesn't cancel out the other. For example, when, when you do a will in Australia, you usually have a, a statement saying this will revokes any previous wills. And would the will from the country where the assets re- reside, would that always trump the other will? Um, it depends on the circumstances. And I guess most of our audience, let's just use the UK, New Zealand, and America, for example, are they all countries that the will is respected from an Australian point of view over there? 
I'm not sure entirely, but Australian law is based on UK law. So there's some sort of recognition between the two countries. I'm not sure about America. So someone with UK assets, they could apply for probate here and then also apply for probate in the UK based on the Australian will. Interesting. Mm. And as for the question about guardians, that that's a difficult one. If you die leaving minor children and their other parent is also gone, someone's got to look after those kids. And if if it's someone overseas, it's, it's probably impractical for them to do it from a distance unless perhaps the kids are 16, 17. But if, if they're very young, it might mean your, your kids suddenly have to go from an Australian school to go over and uh, enrol in an Indian school, for example. So you really need to develop friends here, <laughs> good friends <laughs> who could potentially help share the burden. You could be their guardian, they could be your guardian. Right. Okay. Lots to think about. Okay, so there you go. That's the end of the Aussie Firebug podcast episode. Hopefully you got a lot of value from that. Next week we'll be back with our shorter usual format for the structuring podcast. Once again, thanks for listening and bye for now. You've been listening to The Structuring Podcast. Check out the show notes for today's episode at www.structuring.com.au forward slash podcast.